Welcome to the Modern Slavery Pack podcast. I am Jakub Sobik. I'm a communications director at the Modern Slavery and Human Rights Policy and Evidence Center. The Modern Slavery Pack was created to enhance the understanding of modern slavery and transform the effectiveness of laws and policies designed to address it. We are funded and actively supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council on behalf of UK Research and Innovation. Meaningful engagement of people with lived experience of modern slavery improves policies and programs designed to tackle this issue. This is the key finding of the research that we published recently. It was commissioned by the UK Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office and conducted by the University of Liverpool. Today we're going to talk about the role of people with lived experience in addressing modern slavery with two of our guests who led this research. We will talk about how it came about, how meaningful engagement of people with lived experience improves their response to modern slavery, the role of language in that process, and what's the best practice for engaging people with lived experience. I hope you enjoy our conversation and find it useful for your work. Welcome to our today's guest, Dr. Wendy Asquip from the Centre for the Study of International Slavery at the University of Liverpool and also a Modern Slavery Pack Research Fellow focusing on international development and uh, other international aspects of modern slavery. And Dr. Alan Chichoncho, Visiting Research Fellow from University of the Witwatersrand. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jakob. Thank you, Jakob. Today we're talking about engaging people with lived experience of modern slavery in international programs and policies. We've just published a report on this. How did the research come about in the first place? Um, so the research was commissioned by the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office um, of UK government uh, in early 2022, and it was really um, a fairly short-term project of about four or five months, um, and it was commissioned really in response to a review um, that was published by the Independent Commission for Aid Impact, so ICAI, um, in late 2020. And that really was looking to assess the UK's approach to tackling modern slavery through the aid programme. Um, and among the findings of that review was that the UK's approach really wasn't yielding any or wasn't yielding significant long-term impacts, and that was linked to a failure to really adequately involve survivors in, in policy and programming. Um, so as a result, ICAI made a number of recommendations, and that included the suggestion there should be more to deepen understanding in this area, um, which is where we, we really came in um, as a team of researchers. So as PEC's um, research fellow focusing on international development, um, I worked with um, PEC's research director, Alex Bolsch, um, to put a proposal together. And we then got in touch with Alan um, to ask if she would work with us on this project too. And we knew she was a researcher with a, a wealth of experience in, um, uh, in ethical approaches to engaging with survivors um, in post-conflict settings of Africa. Um, and we thought that would be a really um, important perspective to include in this project. Um, and then we were lucky enough to have the resource to, to be able to recruit for a wider team of consultants too, um, which allowed us to bring in um, a wealth of perspectives from different regions across the globe. And it was really Alan who led um, that aspect of our work. 
the project uh, had like uh, these different layers of uh, engagement. So as Wendy has said, uh, it was Alex, uh, Wendy and I, like a uh, project uh, leadership level. And then we also had another layer of uh, uh, people who joined the project later on, the regional consultants, uh, whom I think we'll talk about uh, more later. Before we uh, dive into um, all the findings and how you went about the research, uh, I wanted to touch on just why we're talking about it, because we've talked about this issue quite a lot already, uh, including on this podcast. And um, yeah, so why are we talking about it again? I mean, non-experts might think that we should focus on solving the problem around modern slavery rather than, uh, than focusing on technical de details from their point of view on, on how it's done. Why is it so important to talk about this? Yeah, I mean, to date, the survivors have really been largely excluded from these conversations and certainly from decision making around policy and programming to address modern slavery. Um, there's an increasing appetite among lots of donors and funders to engage with people who have lived experience because they recognize that without those perspectives, um, the efficacy of their anti-slavery initiatives um, is really diminished. Um, I can sort of see from the outside how focusing on maybe what seems like technicalities of lived experience engagement might seem like an indirect approach. Um, but actually, the evidence from our research and from other people's research is that addressing lack of survivor engagement will better address the problem. Um, so what I mean by that is um, we found where there was high quality engagement of those with lived experience in policies and programs, there was a really wide range of benefits. Um, so there were things like evidence of greater efficacy of programming, greater self-referral rates and buy-in from affected communities, uh, a better ability to identify and tackle root causes for extreme forms of exploitation, as well as the, the sort of long-term building of a more sustainable anti-slavery sector that's led by those um, at grassroots level with direct insight into the causes and challenges of these issues. Yeah, maybe to add on, you're asking a very um, important question, Jacob. Why should we be talking about engaging, uh, you know, people with lived experience? Some, some people may think that there's more work, more important work, more important issues to engage with. But uh, when you look at uh, the aspect of engaging uh, people with lived experience, there are different layers that uh, we see when we look at the work being done by different uh, stakeholders. We see that uh, there are people who are making effort to engage uh, people with lived experience, but that engagement has not been thought through. How are we engaging uh, people with lived experience? So we, we see that uh, most people who are, who are engaging uh, people with lived experience, they are sort of looking at them telling their stories. Can we have uh, uh, you know somebody with lived experience tell their story? So they are brought in in, the, in this engagement from that perspective, which is uh, sometimes exploitative. Another layer of exploiting somebody who has been exploited before. So there is a need to think through how people with lived experience can be engaged with different stakeholders in this kind of work of trying to end modern slavery and human trafficking. The other interesting aspect as well, when you look at who is engaging people with lived experience, they are engaging them as individuals. 
and and that there is this disconnect between uh, this person with lived experience and the other layers of their lives, their communities, their families. There's a perception that because somebody has been exploited by their community, but their you know families. There is uh, no loyalty. There's no ongoing relationship with those communities. So when we, when we talk about uh, what is missing uh, when, uh, regarding sorry people with lived experience, there is a lot that needs to be thought through, to be unpacked, and going back to what Wendy has said, that at the end of it all is going to bring an impact on how we conceptualize these these programs and these different interventions in the area of modern slavery. Could you please uh, briefly talk us through how you been, uh, how you went about um, carrying out the research, and especially what I'm interested in is how you included uh, people with lived experience in it, uh, because uh, you did, and it's a very important as- uh, aspect of of this research. Yeah. Okay. So the project, uh, as uh, I mentioned earlier, it had. Uh, different categories of people coming from different backgrounds and geographical, you know, coverage. So apart from the the top leadership, including uh, Wendy, Alex Balch, and then myself, we had uh, five um, regional consultants, and uh, these were based in Africa, Asia, Europe, and North America. So to cover these uh, these regional areas, we recruited uh, five teams, um, two based in East Africa, two in Asia. Then we had a team in, uh, in the US. And then myself later on, I went in to uh, cover up uh, the gap, which was Europe. So I conducted interviews uh, for the European um, uh, part of the project. So we took a collaborative approach to this uh, qualitative research. We wanted to have all the teams inclusive uh, from the point of uh, designing uh, the the, uh, the research instruments, especially because uh, at the end of the day, it would be these regional consultants going on to talk to the different stakeholders to interview them. So we wanted them to be on board right from the start. Uh, Wendy and I and Alex, we went in first to sort of draft the research instruments, including the participant information sheet, consent forms, and then also the interview guides. And then the regional consultants came in sort of review these uh, drafts and then give us feedback on how we can improve. So we had lots of back and forth um, discussion on how to make these uh, instruments uh, uh, usable for the different regional consultants. So co-designing the research at this level was helpful because uh, we had everyone's input, people were confident with the instruments, they were able to turn some of these uh, instruments in their own way of understanding and making sure that uh, the stakeholders they would be meeting to talk to were able to understand the language that was used in these instruments. So we also went on to work together with uh, the regional consultants on uh, data management analysis and writing the reports, something that we will talk about maybe later. 
So our, our research project really had three strands and, and Alan's talked through the consultancy strands, which was a really important part of that work to include lived experience expertise. But um, another of our strands was a desk-based review of, of relevant published literature. And within that, we included work authors or co-authored by those with lived experience. And um, we also had a third strand of work that was around wider engagement with um UK-based and international stakeholders undertaking survivor engagement or supporting lived experience-led networks. So really in every strand of of our work, um, as much as was possible within the scope of a four to five month project, we tried to engage with professionals who had lived experience expertise and really um, embed those perspectives in our research, in our approach, in our findings and, and in our recommendations. So, like uh, on the team we worked with, uh, some people described themselves as, uh, you know, having um, lived experience of modern slavery. But I wanted to talk about uh, one of the teams, which was uh, an organization, um, a survival aid organization in Kenya. And uh, it was a good addition to the project because now we're learning from the organization itself and then also the members who participated in the project, some of them described themselves as uh, people with lived experience. So we had this mixture of uh, consultants at a different level of, uh, you know, of their career development. And then it was good to see that we, we had sort of worked through all those different layers. Great. Um, could you tell us about what you found in the research? Let's dive in into the findings. Yeah, um, so I think I already started to talk a little bit about the fact our research shows um, engagement with people who have lived experience improves policies and programmes. Um, and that's particularly the case where engagement is what we've called high quality and meaningful. Um, now, I know those terms sound quite kind of hazy and maybe a bit unclear, um, but we've tried to offer some clarity. So um, based on findings from our desk-based review and from our interviews um, via our consultant-led research, we've defined high quality and meaningful as, as engagement um, that's long-term. It's across the policymaking um, or program cycle. It's where people with lived experience are embedded within project teams um, as employed colleagues or consultants and where engagement has a really um, clear focus and specific purpose. Um, I think also key is is having feedback loops within projects, so um, opportunities for those with lived experience who are engaged to um, challenge, to feedback, um, and so that everyone feels informed about what they're participating in. Um, I think another thing is that we found partnership working with grassroots survivor-led um, organisations or lived experience engaged networks. Um, provides more ethically robust and inclusive ways to engage um, with a broad base of survivors and affected communities. So it opens out that opportunity for engagement to a wider range um, of people. Something interesting in, that came up out, uh, from the research was uh, the issue of uh, terminologies. At the start, we sort of uh, did not think through it. We just said, oh, we can use the, the term survivor. We can use the term victim. We can use the term, you know, modern slavery, human trafficking, survivor engagement. Those to us at the start of the project, they seemed like um, comfortable terminologies to use, terms that have been used widely, you know, universally. But when the project uh, rolled out, we quickly realized that there was sort of... Uh, 
an interesting emerging um, finding on terminologies. So we realized that uh, different regions, different uh, individuals as survivors or people with lived experience or professionals themselves, different stakeholders, there, is a, there are different understandings, there are different conceptualizations of these terminologies. When you look at the terminology of modern slavery, um, survivor itself, because at the start of this project, we were using the term survivor, but later on, we had to sit back and debate and re rely on the data, sort of challenge ourselves as well on what terminology can we use so that everyone feels inclusive because the terminologies is that sometimes they exclude some categories of people. The issue of language seems particularly striking here. Uh, it's come out of other pieces of uh, research, uh, including modern slavery peg research. Um, and it's interesting to hear that it's so important, but why is it, why is it really so important? What does it do to, to the programs trying to engage uh, people with lived experience in certain contexts? Uh, I think the starting point is always, uh, the starting point should be the definitions, the understandings how people make sense of these terminologies. If people are unable to understand, they're unable to resonate with these terminologies, they will not connect with the conversation. So we see that the English speaking countries, there is a lot of work going on with specific terminologies, you know, modern slavery, survivor, victim, survivor engagement. It, uh, you know, it sort of uh, sends a clear message. But when you expand the scope, you, you find that, that different people, different uh, organizations, individuals themselves, they understand these concepts differently. They resonate with these concepts differently. So when you go in and say, we are looking for survivors, some people may be survivors in the English sense of speaking, but because of the cultural environment they are in, they are unable to connect with that terminology. So the first thing is to understand what would be the best description of that category of people best in the in the area where they are best in the environment best you know on their own understanding as uh, themselves as well at the level of recovery because sometimes somebody has been through these experiences one year two years and we are describing describing them as survivors but to them that does not make sense so it is important for us to sort of sit back and reflect on these widely recognized terminologies so that we can understand how to bring in the different categories of people in the conversation. Picking up on that, you know, we found that being aware of local context, being aware of um, political sensitivities, social norms was really important around terminologies um, <clears throat> so that there are internationally defined terms like um forced labor, for example, or class in child soldiery as a, as a form of labor exploitation. Um, but we found in speaking to, for example, some stakeholders in East Africa, that that was actually really alienating, that that was quite um, perceived to be quite offensive. And so meant that if that term was rolled out in a, in a policy or program, it would probably alienate a lot of local stakeholders. Um, in a different way, in East Asia, for example, using the term modern slavery was considered something that... Um, was, was problematic for all stakeholders involved, for those we might call survivors, for those um, who are, I don't know, business owners, factory owners, 
using modern slavery with any of those stakeholders was considered problematic and potentially um, causing problems for those stakeholders, potentially putting them in in harm. So there are significant um, uh, difficulties around using those international terms without understanding and conversation with local stakeholders, which is why we recommended in our report that that there should be always processes of consultation undertaken with local stakeholders and when any program is designed at the the design stage but also throughout the life cycle of the project so that so that things can be adapted as context change Um, and and then for policymakers we suggested that um, a term like people with lived experience might be more inclusive than a term like survivor because of some of the issues Alan highlighted around um, survivor being a term that, yes, is celebrated and, and empowering as opposed to a term like victim that's been used widely um, in some contexts. And, it, and it's important to recognize that. But we also found in our research that survivor was really um, a highly gendered concept in a lot of contexts so that it was mainly used to refer to women and girls who might have experienced forms of sexual exploitation or other forms of gender-based violence, but the boys and men, um, those who are gender non-binary, people from LGBTQ plus um, uh, identities didn't really identify, self-identify with that category as much. Um, we found widely that people who had experienced forms of labor exploitation or forced labor didn't self-identify with that category. So um, we really felt for policymakers, a term like people with lived experience um, creates a broader opportunity to engage with people and an opportunity for, you know, those who are trying to be reached to define what terms they identify with um, in any relevant policy or program. Yes, that's um, quite fascinating. Um, and you kind of started touching on on the on how to do programs well, uh, kind of coming with an open. Uh, mind and and starting those conversations about the language and it's good to know that uh, uh, the meaningful engagement of people with lived experience actually improves the uh, international programs and policies but uh, my question is how to do uh, those programs well given that there isn't that much of good practice around and we're only starting to really pay proper attention to this issue on the now so the conversation is still only beginning yeah, so I think, you know, um, we just talked about regional variants um, that what we found around like a lot of different stakeholders in different places and, and actually within the same context, having different perspectives. But actually, despite speaking with um, stakeholders in a, in a real range of global regions um, and our desk based review having a worldwide scope, we did find consensus around three key principles that underpin ethical and meaningful lived experience engagement. Um, So they were to be non-tokenistic, being trauma-informed and preventing harm. Um, And I know, Alan, you had some thoughts around this as well. Yeah. Um, One thing that uh, came through like really quickly in the data uh, Stakeholders, some of them were meeting this discussion on uh, survivor engagement or people with live, engaging with uh, people with lived experience. Like, uh, 
for the first time. So the majority of uh, the people we engaged with could not sort of place a definition on survivor engagement. Some of them were doing survivor engagement or survivor you know, inclusion, but they could not sort of define exactly what they were doing. But all, all the interviews we did, it is clear that uh, meaningful survivor engagement means being non-tokenistic. And what is that? When you're engaging with survivors, you have to be purposeful. Why are you engaging survivors in the first place? The structure has to be clear for both parties. People with lived experience who are joining now the other stakeholders. So it should be clear for both parties. What is the engagement leading to? Creating opportunities for uh, people with lived experience. And then also having a bigger picture, a holistic uh, you know, approach to survivor engagement. That is uh, questioning issues of power, you know, issues of privilege, so that uh, there is a, a, a layer of including different categories of people with lived experience. But when we look at uh, the kind of engagement we have, it is tokenistic in a sense that uh, we, we are only dwelling on uh, stories uh, people telling or retelling their trauma, which is uh, extractive, which is uh, exploitative. So when you look at uh, people in programming and uh, you know uh, policy making, there is a sense that uh, there must be mainstreaming of uh, you know survivor engagement at each and every level. We have to question that. How are we engaging people with lived experience? Because if you're having two, three people and you're engaging them and you're thinking that that is meaningful engagement, you need to question that approach. So engaging people with lived experience should happen at all levels, at all phases of projects, at all phases of uh, you know, uh, coming up with a policy, at the level of designing, the level of implementation, evaluation. That is what I mean when I say mainstreaming of people, uh, engaging of people with lived experience. So Alan's really just talked us through, um, you know, what it means to be non-tokenistic that it's an intentional practice um around creating real opportunities for engagement and then our, our second principle was really around um uh, that we found consensus around was being trauma-informed and that's an approach that um has emerged out of healthcare um settings um that really aims to recognize minimize um and counter triggers or subsequent harms encountered by people who've experienced trauma um sort of broadly speaking it's about creating a a, a trustworthy safe transparent um organizational environment that's welcoming for people who've experienced trauma without sort of singling them out in any way um so for example it's about creating opportunities to access peer support or or counseling if, if someone's triggered rather than mandating particular individuals do so based on past experiences or it might be about co-creating opportunities for empowerment um, rather than like alan says assuming that those with lived experience will want to do particular forms of, of work like public speaking um and then the third principle we identified with our stakeholders um, was preventing harm. That was something that there was consensus around um, across global regions. Um, we initially started talking about the concept of safeguarding to different people. And we found that this term, which is widely used in the UK, really isn't familiar in a lot of other contexts. 
Um, but there was really still widespread agreement about the importance of preventing harm when engaging people with lived experience. Um, I think really crucially, though, a lot of stakeholders also spoke. Um, we spoke with emphasised that there was a need for those um, prevention of harm measures to be proportionate and to be co-developed with um, people in local communities. Otherwise, you know, um, there was a warning there that prevention measures um, can and have become barriers to participation and barriers to, to empowerment. So it's really important to sort of balance the need to prevent harm um, and have measures in place with um, wanting to give people an opportunity, real opportunities to, to participate fully. I wanted to uh, get a little bit more practical next. So if you could talk us through uh, the best ways of engaging people with lived experience in programs, uh, but also you identified, uh, I think, 14 uh, kind of promising practices. And uh, would love to hear about that a little bit uh, with some practical examples, if possible. Yeah, sure. So, so as you say, a key finding from the research was this, um, what we call the typology of 14 promising approaches to engagement of people with lived experience um, that relate to particular areas of practice in policy and programming to address modern slavery. And we divided those into sort of three broad categories. One was around policy design and partnerships. Um, a second one was around um, program development and implementation. And the third around monitoring and evaluation. Um, and I think crucially what we found across the board with those is about, it's about how approaches to engagement were undertaken rather than the particular type of intervention. Um, so it's not about saying, for example, that all public awareness raising campaigns are problematic or all leadership campaigns and programs um, to, to support the development of survivors are promising examples of practice, but rather than you can have um, awareness raising campaigns that both show problematic practices and then those that show promising practices too. And it's about how you approach that type of intervention. Um, I know from Alan's um, data set in Europe, there was a case that you wanted to talk through as an example. Yes, uh, Wendy. So uh, the interviews I conducted uh, uh, from uh, the European context, uh, one participant uh, uh, from an international government organization explained how they were being intentional about engaging people with lived experience in their work. Uh, they gave an example of a recently published um, uh, report of their work on gender-sensitive approaches to combating trafficking. Uh, for example, they... Um, they went in uh, from the start, they wanted to engage uh, people with lived experience after they had done the research. So they invited a couple of uh, uh, people, with lived people with lived experience to sort of review the report. And then they had to add their inputs. And then uh, the, the people um, that authored this research, they had to incorporate that feedback. Then they invited uh, the same uh, uh, reviewers to sort of plan for the launch of this uh, work, of this report. So the people with lived experience, they went on to plan for this launch, uh, invite uh, people who 
to participate in this launch, manage the panels, and then also engage with the policymakers at a, a later stage. So we see that they, uh, they were a bit intentional in coming up with different ways of engaging with people with lived experience, which was helpful because uh, you see that the work is about uh, people with lived experience, how do we engage them in this kind of work? And now they come in sort of center them as individuals, as voices, as ex, you know, professionals with the different expertise. So we see that uh, the organization themselves and then people, the other stakeholders outside the organizations, the policymakers, they had a chance to benefit from that uh, engagement. So that's how they went on to explain the, 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 the understanding of meaningful engagement. Yeah, and then an example that, that I'd give from um, the sort of monitoring and evaluation category we identified was um, where there was involvement of people with lived experience um, via an international survival-led organisation that informed um, international measures that monitor government efforts to tackle trafficking worldwide. Um, so this was a partnership between Survivor Alliance and the Walk Free Foundation, and it informed Walk Free's Global Slavery Index. Um, it was a, a partnership between those two organisations and they set up um, a number of what they called lived experience um, expert groups or LEEGs um, in, in a variety of different places. I think they included the UK, India, um, Kenya and Ghana. Um, and what was great about that case was that people with lived experience were brought in not only to reflect on existing monitoring measures but they um, and give feedback on those, but then they were given the scope to actually define new measures where they saw gaps. Um, so for the LEEG in the UK, um, it recommended a measure be added to highlight that all survivors don't have the right to work while going through the national referral mechanism, um, while um, the LEEG in Kenya emphasised the importance of adding measures around monitoring of recruitment agencies. So you can see there that um, there's uh, context-specific recommendations for improvement being made by people with experience of moving through these systems. Um, and because the project was was conducted in partnership between an international organization and a survival-led organization, there was sort of wraparound support and facilitation provided by that trusted um, survival-led network. Yeah, it's great. Thank you very much. It's great to hear uh, those examples. Uh, just to say that you can find loads more of examples in the in the full report and we prepare in a blog with uh, five examples of those best practices to be published on the Modern Slavery Pack uh, website as well. Um, so where does this uh, research leave us? The conversation, as I mentioned, is uh, about the meaningful inclusion of people with lived experience of modern slavery is still fairly young. There are plenty of gaps in evidence. I mean, what next? Jakob, what is next? That is, um, you know, an interesting question, which uh, we have uh, been asking ourselves as well. You know, what can we do with uh, this kind of work and what more can we sort of understand the gaps that are need to be filled? So, yes, as I mentioned earlier, the understanding of uh, engagement uh, among uh, the dif different stakeholders uh, it is still not clear how different categories of people, how different stakeholders uh, understand uh, uh, 
survivor engagement or people with lived ex- engaging with people with lived experience. So I think uh, there is a need to sit back and reflect on that. What are we trying to achieve when we say uh, engaging people with lived experience? Uh, and how do different people understand this? So there's a need to sort of establish a structure that would serve as a um, as a good example of what we mean by engagement of people with lived experience. And then, uh, uh, of course, from the interviews, we see that uh, it is a process. It is not a one-off event. It is not something you achieve and you tick off a, a, you know, a box. It is a bump experience with back and forth uh, you know, negotiations with different uh, stakeholders. We cannot assume that when we have uh, people with lived experience in numbers, you know, join the discussion, then we sort of end it there. No, that the conversation has to continue. It takes different dimensions. And of course, we need to also pay attention that um, survivor engagement does not happen in a vacuum. There are different, uh, you know, connections to a broader sort of structure. So there's need to recognize that uh, the current system uh, prioritizes exclusion and there is a need to address that, issues of power, issues of you know privilege. We need to go through all that for us to understand that centering ex- exclusion is something that uh, needs to be unpacked and then allowing different categories of people to join the conversation. Yeah, and then I think um, to build on what Alan said, some of the the sort of specifics that we found um, around gaps, maybe in evidence, um, we found that there were particularly gaps around um, policy design and there's lots of desire to engage, but a hesitancy to do so um, because of, I think, decontextualized safeguarding measures that are becoming a barrier and and worries about risk. Um, I think we're seeing because of that some... Uh, a lot of discussion of survivor-informed programs and policies, but where the engagement has actually been indirect and through existing data banks of um, interviews, maybe from a number of years ago. So there's not a real opportunity there for engagement. Um, I think the learning in this space is is stunted by you know an unwillingness that's maybe understandable um, for stakeholders who, you know, um, are beholden to funders um, to transparently discuss the challenges that they're encountering. Um, So our interviews suggest because of that, we're seeing a lot of sort of um, replicated mistakes, particularly around tokenistic engagement that, you know, Alan was talking about earlier. But I think, you know, there are lots of opportunities for further work, lots of opportunities to, to develop this work and explore exactly what approaches work well in what particular contexts in terms of geography and sector um, thinking about what specific mechanisms work well where what terminology support um, inclusive engagement and because this area of research is, is so nascent I think there's a, a lot of scope to explore the longer term impacts um, and benefits of engagement for those with lived experience too. Personally, when I joined this project, I wanted to know, you know, there must be survivor engagement, but at what level? At what level is survivor engagement happening? Is it at, uh, you know, the local level? And if it is at the local level, who is uh, at the forefront of that? So we see that uh, the local organization, the community-based organizations are the ones who are pushing 
for this meaningful, you know, survivor engagement. So it would be interesting to see how that translates to the other, you know, uh, mm -hmm. levels, national level, then international level. Because we see that at the national level, we we have this involvement, which is uh, tokenistic, which we talked about. We have one person who is now turned into a popular face. Every event, that person is invited to sort of talk about, uh, speak on behalf of the many people who have gone through, uh, you know, some of these experiences. So it is interesting that we pay attention to who is making an effort, who is being purposeful, uh, you know, to do the work of survivor engagement. And then we see how we can work collaboratively as different partners, as different stakeholders to take it to another level. Certainly uh, loads to learn still. Uh, and I think this uh, research is uh, just a part in a long process of learning in this area. Uh, we better leave it on this note. Uh, Alan, Wendy, thank you for the conversation. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Jacob. Big thank you to Alan and Wendy for their time. You can read about the research on our website. In our resources section, we have the full report to sink your teeth into. And we also have a handy short summary, as well as separate six reports from the regional consultants reflecting on particular issues in the regions. Remember to sign up to our regular newsletter and follow us on social media, on Twitter at Slavery Pack and on LinkedIn. Just search for the Modern Slavery Pack. That's it for this episode of the Modern Slavery Pack podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.